0: The suggestion was made that we um, take a one-week break from the usual subjects that we discuss here which are usually of a more spiritual or perhaps the right word is deeper nature and look at the question of the Siamese twins. That's, uh, I hope no one's here under false pretenses. You can leave now if you're not interested in... It was announced. Let's try to look. I presume everyone's familiar with the, <coughs> the details, the facts of the case. No? Yes? Let's try to look at this, uh, this subject from a Jewish perspective and see what would be the outcome if we were asked. In other words, what would be the Torah attitude, the halakhic attitude to this, uh, to this kind of situation? First of all, we have a number of precedents for this. What I'd really like to, to discuss with you is the precedent of a case that occurred to a Jewish family a few years ago, and go through the steps of what happened in that case and what the halakhic analysis was of that case and the conclusion that was reached, try to give us some, some insight into the, into the process. But for those of you who are not specifically medically qualified, let me give you a little bit of background about the subject in general, just for a couple of minutes and about uh, that case in particular. Now, Siamese twins, as you I'm sure were so-called conjoined twins, right? Two babies who are born identical twins who are fused at one or other part of their bodies. (coughs) We call them conjoined twins, but really they're not joined, they're non-disjunct, if you really want to be fussy about it, because the way that these twins develop is that one fertilized ovum, instead of splitting into two entirely separate and identical twins, which is the mechanism of identical twinning, fails to disjoin. In other words, they they, they separate but remain attached at some point. And depending on exactly where and at which stage of the the development of the mass of cells that is becoming these two children, they can be connected virtually anywhere. There's a case of two American girls who are joined at the head, top of the head. Um, They are in their 30s now and they function very well. They share some... Some brain connections, and they share a skull connection, and they are doing very well. One's a nurse, and one's a country and western singer. <laughs> <laughs> One of them said she dreamed recently that she was separated from her sister, and she felt terribly lonely. Right? And they've been fascinating cases. They're going back to antiquity. There's uh, there a few good reviews of the subject, for those who are interested there have been all sorts of permutations a very common permutation is that twins are joined at the chests or chest and abdomens very common to share a liver in fact in the case that I'd like to go through with you the twins did share a liver um, these twins have been reported I haven't seen any professional reports but the, the twins that are currently you know at issue here are reported as being joined at the pelvis and below and they share a lot of pelvic components which e- each of the situations of the types of joinings complicate, you know, adds unique features to the potential surgery, obviously, and the, and the, uh, the future of the, of the two children. <coughs> there have been uh, all sorts of permutations. The reason that they are often referred to as Siamese twins, you're probably aware, is that uh, in, the, in the last century, well, now I suppose we have to say more than well, no, two centuries ago, there were two twins, Eng and Cheng, who happened to be uh, Siamese, who were brought to, to this country and exhibited in a circus, who had joined at the chest by a fibrous band they later settled down as farmers in America they married they married two sisters they spent one week with one and then they spent the next week with the other and they had 11 children between them uh, which is a halakhic problem incidentally, you know, incidentally one, of the, one of the sources halakhically for identical twins one of the, one of the sources is halakhic responses that discuss this very question of marriage of a Siamese twin now, there are a number of fascinating halakhic issues one of the issues is that if the twins would be, for example, girls... They are usually girls, girls incidentally. It's more, much more common for these identical twins who are conjoined to be girls than boys. If these twins would be girls, and one of them married, there'd be a fascinating question. One of the questions would be whether the man marrying that sister would be contravening the Torah prohibition of marrying two sisters. But since, in effect, the other one is... You know, take one question. Another question is if they share organs, certain organs certain parts of their bodies, they obviously adds very great complexity to the question, to you know, to the marital question. One of the serious halakhic problems is that even when the twins are relatively complete, but joined, one of the halakhic issues is that there's a Torah prohibition, there's a, there's a, there's a, in Jewish law there's a prohibition of what would be problematic would be the intimate side of marriage. The reason that would be problematic is that is that if one of the twins married, whether it would be a, a man or a woman, then the intimate side of marriage would necessarily have to be conducted in the presence of the twin
1: mm-hmm.
0: but now that's not the, that's not the way we are very it's a very private area in Jewish law we even refrain from expressing physical affection in public a very private thing between husband and wife and no one else may be present at such a time there would be a halakhic, uh, there would be a halakhic issue there are many fascinating halakhic issues revolving around all sorts of questions whether they defined as one person or two that has all sorts of con- um, spin-off issues very, very fascinating question and uh, it's a very tragic and fascinating to review the history of, of some of these um, twins <coughs> in, uh, in Romania a, uh, almost 100 years ago 90 odd years ago there was a pair of women <coughs> <cyber> <coughs> twins where one gave birth one of the conjoined twins actually got married and uh, gave birth. To the best of my knowledge, it's the only recorded case of a woman conjoined twin giving birth, although there's no reason why it, why it shouldn't have happened um, beyond that case. There are recorded cases of one of the twins having died while being attached. There was a famous case in brought in legal sources where where one twin wished to marry and her sister objected on the basis of modesty, the question of modesty. She refused. The judge, in order to <coughs> Resolved the case, ordered the sister who objected to stand. She was unable to stand because of being attached to her sister. He then ordered her sister to stand. She was capable of doing so, dragging her sister with her. He ruled that she was the dominant twin, therefore she had a right to marry since the sister was only attached, as it were. She, in fact, married. And the reports say that the attached sister died of shame and pain. And uh, due to being attached to a decomposing corpse, the the other sister died as well some time later. The, the, Siam, the original Siamese twins died within hours of each other, although they were anatomically complete, <clears throat> as far as is known. They lived to their 60s, and they died within within hours of each other. Anyway, the history is, is fascinating, and the surgical history is also fascinating. The questions that have been raised, they tend, unfortunately, not to do well. In the annals, in the surgical annals that, that record these cases... The ones that have come to surgery, even in the cases where separation has been relatively (coughs) simple, in other words, simple enough to be undertaken, there have been very few surviving, uh, very few survivors where the complications are similar to the ones that 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 exist in this case. One similar, one case similar to this, I saw once reported as having the the surviving child survive for seven years and then died. It's a very difficult area. Let me share with you the details of a case which occurred a few years ago in, in, in the United States, which serves as a halakhic precedent, very similar in many ways to, to this case. I'll try and point out some of the differences. And uh, when, when we're done, if there's time, you're welcome to ask questions, in case perhaps I didn't explain something clearly. If I'm able to, I'll do my best to, to answer. But let me try to give you the details of that case. Now, listen carefully to the details because the the anatomical and surgical details here very specifically affect the Halakhic considerations and the ruling that was issued in that case and you'll see that A lot of the operative issues are very similar to the case that's in question now In fact in many ways this is a simpler case to decide than that one was when you see the factors that were involved <coughs> so The background is like this in October 1977 and the date is significant, I'll try and try and show you why. In October of 1977, a observant Jewish family, in a small town in the eastern United States, gave birth to two girls who were <coughs> conjoined. The girls turned out to be joined at the chest and upper abdomens, and they, in fact, shared the liver, as I mentioned before. That was not the surgical problem, however. The reason that that was not a problem, and it often is not a problem in these cases, is that, <coughs> very often the twins are born sharing a liver but they have the essential anatomic components of the liver duplicated, which means that the liver could be cut, it could be sectioned it's not, that's not a particularly difficult surgical challenge, the liver could be sectioned, leaving enough liver tissue in each child in order to support her life you know that the normal human liver is, um, is able to support you know, I don't know how much you are, how much you drink but um, given a you know normal alcoholic intake normal stress on your liver the normal tissue in normal liver would be adequate to support two children and in this case it was judged to be perfectly adequate and the livers could easily have been separated in fact when surgery was undertaken the livers were separated That was not the problem the problem was that the first doctor to examine these children could hear only one heartbeat right? and an abnormal heartbeat at that and this is a particular particularly difficult complication the heart turned out to be an abnormally fused, six-chambered heart. You know that the normal heart has four chambers, right? Even in America. And, uh, (laughs) And therefore, there should have been eight chambers to this abnormal organ. However, there were six. And the septum dividing what should have been the two halves of this of this heart was so thin, just a few millimeters thick, that there was no way to really cut it, leaving two organs. Even if you could have, the one side, namely the two-chambered side, would have been completely inadequate to, you know, to, 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 to function and support the circulation of that twin. So there was an abnormal and enlarged six-chambered heart, but it was doing fine, it was functioning adequately at the time. The um, heart was also not located completely centrally. It was located more in the chest of what was known then as baby girl B uh, and less in the chest of so-called baby girl A. Incidentally, they had very different personalities. This is often a comment of the nurses who work in the intensive care where they are w- working closely with these children in this particular case. Although they are identical twins and sharing a common cardiovascular system, the same blood circulation, and genetically identical, they have different personalities right? you know, Talmud says that no two human beings have the same soul structure even if they're identical twins, it's completely <coughs> separate and in fact in this case, baby girl B was a much more placid and restful child, and baby girl A was a much more irritable or anxious type of a child in fact the nurses became so attached to them that when the surgery was, uh, was allowed, Halachik and the hospital in fact moved ahead, the nurses refused to take part Uh, They felt emotionally unable to go into an operation, uh, knowing initially, knowing ab initio, that they would see a child die. You know, very few people actually die in the operating room. You know, you can almost always get them out into the recovery room where it's somebody else's problem. And uh, people don't often, especially to go into an operation where the person, patient will be actually killed by the surgeon, extremely better, the hospital in fact ended up putting together a volunteer team a lot of interesting uh, human factors in this case. But what happened was the children were flown to Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia. Now, in Philadelphia is a hospital there known as Children's Hospital, in which is a major, one of the top cardiac, pediatric cardiac surgery facilities. And the surgeon in charge of this case was Dr. Everett Cook, And that's interesting because he happens to be, the family is a very devoutly orthodox Yeshiva <coughs> family, and the surgeon happens to be a very religious Protestant Christian. This Dr. Koop is the kind of surgeon who used to spend the night in the hospital before major surgery reading the Bible to prepare himself for such difficult, so very devoutly religious man. He later became the Surgeon General of the United States and, and uh, he became, was well known for his religious position on, on many issues. He was the surgeon involved. In addition to this, the hospital is a Catholic institution. So there's the patients here from a very observant Jewish family. The surgeon happens to be a Protestant Christian. The hospital is a Catholic institution, and it was also heard in the, in the high court in the United States. And the, the reason was that since Dr. Coop proposed killing one child, as is being proposed here in this country, of course, so, as you're aware, is uh, <coughs> the same issue. He was anxious that someone might bring a charge of homicide against him or the hospital. So he wanted a court, author, a court order authorizing surgery to protect them from such a charge. It is a fascinating opportunity to, to, to compare how these various religious and ethical legal systems look at the same, at the same dilemma. Now, what, what the facts of the case were there, which are relevant and, and also relevant in this case, is that the dilemma was the very vexed and difficult moral and religious ethical dilemma was that if nothing were done, it was clear that both children would die. Now that was the problem. This abnormal heart would be would prove to be inadequate to support the circulations of two growing children. While they were just a few days old, it was adequate. But as they both got bigger, it would fail, go to high output failure and, not, and, and, and therefore both would die. In fact, this was very clear to all concerned. One of the reasons was that in all previously recorded cases of this type of abnormality the children had not survived. In fact, the hospital had a heart flown up from Colombia and South America, a preserved heart of two little children exactly like this, who had died, so that they could study the anatomy. You know, they, the, the surgeons were very anxious. They did not relish the idea. Can you imagine the surgical... Put yourself in that situation, opening the tiny compressed space of two newborn chests, not knowing what exactly you will find. You know that. You know that surgeons have a particular personality, a certain tendency to a certain personality type among surgeons. It's well-known in medicine that different specialties attract different, um, you know, personalities. Uh, Perhaps a little stereotype sometimes, but no doubt there's uh, some truth in it. The the surgeons always accuse the physicians of being pipe-smoking thinkers who do nothing for the patient. And the physicians accuse the surgeons of being life-happy characters will cut anything that moves. There is a little truth in in both of those stereotypes, and by and large, surgeons are people who like to know what they're going to do, be prepared, do it very well, as fast as possible, get in, get out, and get the job done. To have to open chests like this without knowing what would be found was a surgical nightmare. Incidentally, some people in the audience medically involved, without going into too much detail, there were other challenges as well. Just to share with you some of the anguish and fascination of 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 this, to share with you one one insight. When surgery was finally undertaken, the hospital decided to use two separate teams of anesthetists. Two separate teams of anesthetists, each one to take care of one child. But it posed problems that had never before been dealt with in medicine. You have to understand here, (laughs) again, put yourself in the position of anesthetist. You're here working two separate teams, again in the tiny confined space of these two newborn heads. And you have to remember that while each team of anesthetists is controlling its child's respiratory function, but anything that it does that relates to the cardiovascular system will affect the child as well. Because although they have separate respiratory systems, but they share a bloodstream. Now that's, that, that is not taught anywhere in any medical school, anywhere, you know, anywhere in the world, because that's just not normal. So they had to deal with these kinds of physiological <coughs> challenges that have never been dealt with before, to a remarkable degree of teamwork. In fact, it took the hospital 11 days to put together a, a team of volunteers the anesthetist two, two anesthetists in fact uh, asked to be excused from the case on religious grounds and uh, eventually after 11 days a team was put together and surgery was well, you know they were ready to move to surgery the um, the reason that the, ch- the twins would not survive first of all was that all previously recorded cases had not survived <coughs> therefore there was relative certainty almost certainty here that if nothing were done both of them would within a few possibly weeks and certainly months they would both in fact die. Uh, on the 21st day of their lives, the twins in fact went into heart failure. They needed to be maintained in intensive care, and it was quite clear to everyone, not just on theoretical, historical grounds, but in this very case the heart was already beginning to fail, and therefore if nothing were done, both twins would die. Now, Dr. Coop proposed to the family a very, very agonizing option. <coughs> so let's go through the steps of, you know, of, of, of exactly what happened. First of all, why am I doing all the thinking? What would you suggest? What could be done? Is there anything we can do for both of these twins? Well, the first thought that comes to mind is what about separating them, leaving the heart in the chest of baby girl B, right, and transplanting a heart into baby girl A? That's what you're about to say, right? <coughs> that was a thought, that was a thought, but it was rapidly almost immediately discarded as not an option. The reason is, that a number of reasons. The main reason is that it had never been done before. This case took place in 1977. The first time a newborn heart was transplanted was in 1986. (coughs) And even today it's very uncommon. The main reason that it's uncommon, I'm sure you don't need any medical qualification to know this. No, that's not the main reason. The main reason that it's so uncommon, on the contrary, rejection problems are becoming... Uh, less, less problematic all the time. No. The main reason that newborn hearts are almost never transplanted is they're almost never available. To find a donor, yes, where, are, where, where do we get donor hearts? You know, one of the most serious problems in adult heart transplantation is a lack of donors to provide the organs. Jewishly, it's a, it's a serious problem. The whole idea of heart transplantation from the donor's perspective is a serious Jewish problem. i certainly not going to go into that now, but Apart from the Jewish and halachic problems, there's a practical problem in the secular, non-Jewish world, and that is that it's very hard to find. We have an inadequate supply of donor organs in general, and hearts are included. But of newborns, to find a newborn whose heart is fully functional, and yet the child has not... You know, the, the reason that heart transplantation can be performed today is because the secular medical world Throughout the world, has defined death as brain death. You must be aware of that. Brain death is no longer defined. I'll try and refer to this a bit later. Death is no longer defined as cessation of heartbeat or heartbeat and respiration. It is now defined as brain death, or more specifically, brain stem death. So what happens is you have a person who has got brain brain death, and the heart is still functioning. So they're able to take a beating heart, right? You cannot do a transplant with a heart that has not been beating for a while. The heart's metabolism is so active. That the cells begin to, to lyse, to become non-functional, to undergo biochemical death so rapidly that if you wait a very brief period of time, you cannot use that heart. So they redefined death as This was the big drive to redefine death. In 1980, a President's Commission in America sat and recommended that, that the brainstem death be used as a criterion for death. And now that is the active definition of death in this country and all of the United States, in South Africa and across Europe, Japan. That is the international standard now of death is brain stem death. So they take the heart while it's beating. Why do they do that? Because there's no brain function. They define the patient as dead. That applies to adults because most of those cases are cases of head injuries. It's a young man who has ridden his motorcycle into a wall at 100 miles an hour and he has a fully functional heart but not any brain left. There are not too many newborns in that situation, at least not yet. And therefore, (coughs) there is a inadequacy, obviously, of newborn hearts. In fact, the first time, if I'm not mistaken, the first time... Do you mind a few digressions? Don't mind a few digressions? The first time it was done, if I'm not mistaken, was in uh, the case, the first time it happened, was a child in California, who, and the surgeon happened to be a Jewish surgeon, (coughs) the name of Norman Shumway, he's a very well-known cardiac surgeon in California, had a newborn (coughs) child who was dying of of heart failure, heart disease, and the heart they managed to find for the child was in Vermont. Now, Vermont is 3,000 miles away from California, right? But it was the only heart that they had, and what they did was they put one of the young surgeons into a hired jet, they rented a jet, they flew him across the country to excise the heart of uh, of the child in Vermont, which he did, put it into a box of cardioplegic solution, got back into the jet, which refused to stop. They couldn't get the jet started in Vermont. They eventually scrambled the United States Air Force supersonic fighter. They put the terrified surgeon in the back (laughs) of the supersonic jet with a heart on his lap. When they got back to California, they had to resuscitate the surgeon. (laughs) They they did that and uh, successfully transplanted a heart into a child in California who survived. But it's very difficult to... (coughs) That is one of the main objections. But more, more importantly, perhaps, is that that was 1986. This case took place in 1977. It had never been attempted, and therefore there was um, that was not a that was not an option. The next option, which I'm sure you are bursting to suggest, is why not implant into the baby girl A, leave the chest, leave the heart in the chest of baby girl B, where it was more located and implant into the chest of baby girl A an artificial pump, right? Artificial heart. Well, you're probably aware that even today, many years later, that's still not been perfected. Even for adults, let alone for children, one of the problems (coughs) in adults is miniaturization of the components. And um, there's, as of today, no fully um, self-contained, implantable cardiac uh, pump device that um, that is used, and certainly not for newborns, and therefore that was not an option. And there really are very few other options. Perhaps the only one I can think of is what about transplanting an animal organ into baby girl A. There's a lot of interest now. In fact, in, in this city, a few months ago, a conference took place um, where the question of uh, using pig organs to transplant into humans was raised. <coughs> you know that uh, you, may, you may not enjoy hearing this, but the animal that is most closely related to us physiologically is the pig. And um, the pig, pig tissues do very well in humans. We use pig valves all the time. They function very, very successfully in, in human beings. But pig organs, entire organs involving cells, are not not an option. The rejection problem is acute. it doesn't last more than a few hours. And therefore that is not yet an option. The, the reason it's interesting it nowadays is because the suggestion is to clone pigs, or modify them genetically, or perhaps grow even organs in isolation that would be genetically suitable to transplant or implant into humans. In fact, during this conference, I happened to be, happened to be part of that uh, on the panel in that conference. They didn't ask me there as, as a doctor. They asked me there from a religious perspective. They wanted to know whether transplanting pig tissues into humans would raise a castrous problem, right? What would be a problem of kosher food? The answer to that is very easy, and that is that when they genetically modify the pigs so that they fit humans, they should also modify them so that they're kosher, and then we can... (laughs) Anyway, the point is that, obviously, there's no problem transplanting pig tissues into humans. Obviously, you could even eat unkosher food to save a life. Obviously, that's, that's not an issue. But that is very early days in that research. There's nowhere near practical application yet, and therefore... And therefore, there really were no no other options. And what Dr. Coop suggested to the family is exactly what this city has been uh, part, you know, the discussion that had been going on here over the last couple of weeks. And that is, he suggested to the family the very, very agonizing um, option of sacrificing baby girl A. What he proposed to do, in fact, was to leave the entire abnormal heart in the chest of baby girl B, separate off baby girl A, Carry her body over to a surgical, <coughs> sterile surgical table, use ribs from baby girl A to graft closure of the chest cavity of baby girl B, right? So, so that this enlarged organ would remain entirely in her chest and continue to support her life. The cost would be the sacrifice of baby girl A, and the possible, you know, um, upside, let's say, would be the saving of the life of baby girl B. That's what he put to the family. Now, you can readily appreciate the difficulty of this, of this issue. It, is, uh, it raises many halakhic issues. One of the issues that it raises, which is a fascinating subject in its own right, I just want to mention it in passing, is the question of selection. Right? Who do you select when you have inability to... Yes, I mean, anyone could be in that situation. I personally, more than one occasion, been in a situation where I had to step into a casualty department where people have been seriously injured. I, I personally was a military <coughs> doctor. For, for, for two years, we had seriously injured soldiers, often often a number at a time, and you have only one pair of hands, and you cannot attend to everybody who is bleeding. What does Jewish law say about who comes first? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, this could happen to, to anybody. You stop at an accident, perhaps, and people are injured. I don't know if people stop at accidents anymore, do they? Sure <coughs> In America, they don't stop because of legal issues in South Africa they don't stop because of AIDS
1: <laughs> I don't know why
0: they don't stop in England but I'm sure they have a reason but the point is that um, if you do if you're in a situation like that where you can't save everyone then what are the priorities how do you prioritize who gets saved right? that's one issue that's not a difficult issue I mean there were well oiled well trodden pathway in in those issues we don't have time to go into fully but very briefly what's the first criterion that you use in selecting all else being equal in fact it's the the one is closest to you physically the one is physically closer to you do you know that all else being equal if one person is closer and one is more distant you're required to save the closer one first the reason is because you have a principle the ma'averin Allah mitzvah so you may not bypass a mitzvah and since the mitzvah of saving this life is now incumbent on you're now, you're now beholden yes in this mitzvah you can't <laughs> bypass it to go to the more distant mitzvah and therefore the saving a life ultimate mitzvah right and therefore, the almost ultimate, and therefore, the one who's closest comes first. What if they're both the same distance away from you and one's your brother? Shouldn't have to think about it. <laughs> your brother, in fact, comes first. And the reason is you have a verse that says, alti salam." you may not ignore your flesh, and therefore your brother comes first. Many of our authorities hold that it means a neighbor, a friend as well, he is coming first. Obviously, the question that's bothering you now is, what happens if one is closer and one is more distant, but the one is more distant is your brother, right? Which principle takes priority? Your brother. Brother comes first, and the reason is that the principle of Mipsach Al Tisalem. No. The it. The, um, the principle of Mipsach Al Tisalem takes precedence over the principle of uh, proximity. And they are fascinating fascinating issues, what if one patient is salvageable, one has a terminal illness and therefore will only be saved temporarily it's a fascinating area, we can talk about it at some other other time but we have a lot of clear principles and a system of prioritizing the principles about who gets saved when (coughs) it's a major area of Jewish law, (coughs) very fascinating area, but that is one of the issues, you can readily see that our case is a much more difficult issue, we are not talking here only about selection of which twin to save we are also talking here about killing somebody in order to save somebody else that is a whole different and much more much more difficult um, halakhic area whole area in general let let me tell you what happened In let's walk through the steps together of of what happened in this case and see if we can gain an understanding of the principles involved the family when Dr. Koop said to them that if we do nothing both will die and if we act we can possibly save one the family went to ask their Abba the rabbi asked his rabbi, <coughs> who asked his, and finally the question arrived at the doorstep of the later of Moshe Feinstein, who was possibly the greatest halachic, certainly one of, if not the greatest halachic authority in the world. He was an old man at the time, but Moshe died, I think, in 1986, if I'm not mistaken, in his 90s, so this was a few years before that. He tried to refuse to take the case, and I'm sure you can sympathize with that, but there was no one else, and in fact he was required to to issue a halachic ruling in this Case. He later said it was the most difficult personal life and death decision that he ever was required to make. And he, in his long life, made many life and death decisions because he was the ultimate broad shoulders on which the Torah world relied for these sorts of things. Ram Moshe took 11 days of uh, deliberating on the matter. He had the luxury of that time because the hospital, as I said, was taking that uh, time to prepare itself for the surgery in the event that Rav Moshe would say that it was permitted. So the, the, the hospital was preparing. And he spent 11 days of fasting and working on the question together with members of his family. He has a son-in-law who is a professor of biology. He has a grandson who is a, a physician <coughs> head of a hospital in, uh, in Netanya in Israel. The, uh, the family, the medically qualified members of the family got together with Rav Moshe to discuss the technicalities of the case so that he could, understand, he could you know, understand the medical and technical issues and give a ruling based on Torah sources this case. You, you, you should be aware that we have an axiom that all human situations are located in Torah. That means the Mishnah, that repository of the oral law, contains all human situations. You no human, no possibility that a human being could ever encounter that cannot be derived from the Mishnah. But you often need the great wisdom and depth and broad shoulders of a person like that to correctly identify exactly which area of Jewish law forms the correct precedent for this case. Now, in his, in his deliberating uh, um, over this case, a number of interesting things happened. The first thing is this. Rabbi Feinstein asked Dr. Koop some very strange questions. Uh, very, very strange questions. A non-Jewish surgeon had a lot of trouble understanding why the aged rabbi was asking him questions that did not seem to make any sense. But as we go through the issues, I hope you'll understand why these questions were, were relevant. And the question that, the first question that bothered everyone... I'm not sure if Einstein asked him this question, but the first question that bothered everyone, and it's been very actively debated ever since, and also previously, in other contexts, was, and I'm sure you would think of this question yourself, are these two little girls one human being, or are they two?
1: Right? Mm-hmm. You
0: see the relevance of that question. If you say that there are two human beings, then we're talking about sacrificing the life of one to save... Another, And we have a general principle in Hanukkah which is Ein nefesh mipnei nefesh. Ein nefesh mipnei nefesh. We don't put aside one life in terms of another. We adjudge human life to be of infinite value and we don't prioritize what they call in the secular world now quality of life. G- generally speaking, there are some technical exceptions, again a, a lengthy subject. But generally speaking, we regard life as being of infinite value and any amount of infinity, if you can say such a thing, is equal and therefore we do not We do not prioritize. We don't push aside one life in favor of another. However, if you would say that they're not two lives, but rather one human being, then when you talk about detaching baby girl A, you're not talking about killing her, you're talking about amputating part of a body in order to save the body. That would be clearly allowed, even obligatory in halakha. That would be allowed. Um, There are often cases like that in medicine where a patient needs, unfortunately, to have a leg, a foot, or a leg amputated because it's gangrenous, in order to save their life. The clear halachic ruling there is that it is an obligation. We cannot force someone into that. right? You can't force someone into a procedure that is short-term risky or painful, but it's no question that the correct course of action is to sacrifice a limb in order to save a life. Do you have to sacrifice a limb to save someone else's life? Do you have to sacrifice one of your limbs to save someone else's life? It's, not a, it's very hard to think of a case and the reason is that when you give a kidney which is an everyday event the giving a kidney is not only the giving of a faculty or an organ or a limb it's also the risk to life of the donor that's a whole different question you understand two issues here when you take out a kidney to give to a sibling or a child or even unrelated people as often done nowadays there's question of sacrificing the Limb or organ, but there's also the question of the danger to the life of the donor. Even though the danger is very small in the case of kidney donation, but it is a definite danger. So that complicates the issue, and again, that's a fascinating subject in its own right. But in the pure case of giving a limb to save a life, right, where there's no danger, just the loss of a limb, there is one precedent in Jewish law that I can think of as a famous, uh, famous case happened many centuries ago when the the Radbaz of David Ben Zimri, great Talakhic authority who lived in Egypt at the time, was confronted with a very difficult situation. What happened was there was a man in Turkey, a Jew in Turkey, who was accused of stealing by the Muslim authorities. Now, you know the Muslim punishment for stealing right.
1: you know right. is
0: amputation of the head. This Jew managed to escape from Turkey and he fled to Egypt. The Sultan in Turkey captured another Jew, imprisoned him, and sent a message to the Jew in Egypt saying, if you come home, I'll release this man and cut your hand off. If you refuse to come home, I'll kill this individual. So he was put in that very dilemma. Does he have to go back and sacrifice his hand to save the man's life? Or is he entitled to remain passively in Egypt and have another Jew die? He went to ask the great Radbaz, and it forms a classical responsum in the halakhic literature. The Radbaz answers this question, and it's worth looking up yourself. <laughs> Because he brings novel and remarkable halachic uh, um, um, factors to bear, but to cut off, just to give you the brief, uh, digested outcome, he rules, again on the basis of fascinating reasoning, he rules that if a man would go back and sacrifice his hand in <coughs> order to save his friend's life, it would be an incredibly meritorious act of what we call chesed, in other words, of, of uh, kindliness, a tremendously meritorious act, but in fact he's not obliged. Not obliged. That would be a case of giving up a limb in order to save a life. If we say that the two twins are, are in fact a, a one person, then we're talking only about amputating part of a person. The Mishnah actually, the Madrash actually, brings a case of one person with two heads. That incidentally very uncommon in, in Siamese twins, although it does occur. One human with two heads and wants to know this very question about whether the person is one or two. In the case that's mentioned there, I think it was King Solomon himself who dealt with the case, he suggested that they cover the head of one and pour hot water on the other head, and see if the yeah, pour hot water on one head and see if the other one shouted. See if there's a reaction. You understand? From the other one, when one. do they share a common nervous system? That seemed to be the issue. It's very, very uncommon. But uh, the, the debate, in fact, there was whether they wanted to. In this case that we're discussing, everybody agrees, and I'm sure you would feel that would be the correct way to go. That we need to look on these children as to... Yes two people rather than one. It would be very easy to say it's only one person in amputation. You would feel that there would be a difficult... And Rav Mosh in fact dealt with this case as far as we know on the basis of the, of, of there being two uh, human beings. The reason we're not sure is because he never wrote a formal response on this case. All we have from Rav Mosh is hearsay of people who are close to him. What were the factors that he... What were the factors in fact that he, that he used? But we don't have a reliable... Uh, uh, we don't have a. You know, he never wrote in his own words on which he, with a fascinating area for his surmise, what exactly were the halachic factors that were involved. In fact, if you want to research this case yourself, there was a Pulitzer Prize-winning review of this case in a newspaper in Philadelphia at the time, known as the Philadelphia Inquirer. And uh, I'm sure you could, I'm sure you could uh, even probably download that article online. it's A beautiful article with diagrams, lengthy article, won a national prize. As far as I know, the author is not Jewish, but he researched the halakhic side in admirable fashion, and gave a report there on the technical medical side, the Catholic view, the secular legal view, and a very, very gifted and accurate insight into many of the halakhic factors that were reported to be relevant here. It's a very remarkable piece of writing. If you're interested, you can can follow it up there with a lot more detail. But, um, (coughs) that was the first question. Now, the second question is a lot more difficult to understand, and Stay with me as we as we go through this, we'll have to do a we'll have to take a little voyage here through a number of Halachic areas and understand them and then come back, close our circle and apply those factors to our twins. Our real aim this evening is to interest you in these things so much that you'll take a sabbatical year off your profession and you'll come and sit with us in your for a year.
1: <laughs>
0: right? And you'll learn Torah. It happens to the best of us, I can assure you. Some of us never leave. Anyway, so The second question was more interesting. Uh, Stay with me carefully. He sent a message to Dr. Cooper as follows. He said to him, you are planning to operate you know, every halakhic question is always answered exactly according to the details that are asked. It's very dangerous to apply a halakhic decision that you heard sort of vaguely from one place and apply it to another situation. Halakhic authority answers very, very specifically according to the factors that are relevant in that particular case. But Moshe asked him the following question. You're planning to sacrifice baby girl A in order to save baby girl B. Now, that was the surgical plan. Reason being, that was a feasible way to undertake the surgery. If you wanted, could you reverse it? If you wanted, it, could you leave the heart in the chest of baby girl A and sacrifice, sacrifice baby girl B? Dr. Cook kept sending a message back. Ask the rabbi, why does he want me to do that? It's almost impossible this way. We have no knowledge of it, whether it will work or not. It's never been done. They were, they were concerned that when they tied off the major vessels of baby girl A... The sudden strain on the heart would cause it to fibrillate, you know, go into abnormal contract, contractile pattern, so that it would, be, you know, fail. There, there was no knowledge of what would happen here. Why does the rabbi want me to do it in a way? And he eventually told him categorically, and he's professed that since over the years that it was completely unthinkable to do the surgery that way, impossible, and he would not consider it. We have to understand why I was so Feinstein so anxious to know. In fact, he did not want him to reverse the surgery. He was quite happy that baby girl B would be the one to be saved, that baby girl A would be... But he needed very much to know whether it would be possible to do the procedure in the other, yes, direction. Now, why was that question relevant? <coughs> Let's try and go through the steps and see if we can work out a potential analysis to this case. I must mention, especially for those of you who have more halakhic background, there's been very vehement argument against this way of thinking well-known Rosh Hashem in Israel wrote a lengthy piece in which he disagreed entirely with this reasoning agreed with the conclusion but based it on entirely different reasoning and if we, I we'll have enough time for that this evening completely different line of thought yes and there have been other lines of thinking subsequently proposed this is surmise. the factors I'm sharing with you are certainly halakhically valid factors and they apply throughout medicine and many of the factors apply well beyond the boundaries of medicine whether in fact this is the exact course of the thinking of Ramon Shepines in this case is not you know, the degree of surmise yet. But it could be like this. Now, we're going to leave the twins for a moment, okay? You're going to stay with me? Not sure. And we're going to take a voice through a number of halakhic areas, see what we can learn from them, and then apply them to our twins. How can we kill somebody in order to save someone else, right? Let's focus on this. We're proposing killing somebody, according to this way of thinking, if she's defined as a full life. We're thinking of killing someone in order to save someone else. Where do we have a precedent for that in Halah? There's a principle in Jewish law called roidev. Okay, roidev. The principle of roidev means, I'm not going to go into some of its more infamous uh, application in recent Israeli history. That's off limits for questions. But halachically, the valid concept of roidev is as follows. When you see someone pursuing someone else to kill them, you may take the life of the aggressor to save the pursuit okay again A is trying to kill B and the only way you can save B is by killing A in such a case you may in fact you're obliged to kill A in order to save the life of B right Um, let's just stop here for one moment halachically we always consider the factors that we're dealing with to be hypothetically perfect okay your your natural instinct is to say how can you be sure you know are you sure that there's no other way are you sure he will kill him that's not the way the Talmud works. Okay? The way the halacha is derived is always in hypothetically pure and perfect situations. Life is never like that. But you need to isolate the situations in purity and perfection in order to understand the principles. That's the good old scientific method, isn't it? You take in your lab and you freeze all the variables in a very controlled fashion and you move one of them and see, and see what happens. Life isn't like that. Medicine's not like that. The principles that you learn in medical school are very clean and clear-cut. When you approach a real patient in a real bed, no, it's not like that at all. It's all factors are swimming vaguely in front of you. It doesn't alter the fact that... In, and therefore, in the purely hypothetical case where A is trying to kill B and you know everything there is to know and there's no other way to stop that act of murder, you, in fact, are obliged to kill A in order to save the life of B. That's the law, that's the law of Dreader. What's the most common application of this law? Probably the most common application of this concept is self-defense. Self-defense... You are entitled to preemptively, in fact, there's an injunction in the Talmud that makes it clear that the correct thing to do is to preemptively strike at an aggressor in order to save your own life, right? In order to, that is to, somebody attacking you as a red you may you may do this. Even though we normally apply a principle which states who says your blood is sweeter than his, right? For example, in Jewish law, you may not kill someone else to save your own life if that person is not an aggressor. You understand? If someone says to you, "Look, kill so and so, we'll kill you," you are not allowed to do that. Not allowed to do that. Right? The Talmud says, "Does not even quote a biblical source for this." It says it's pure logic. Who says your blood is sweeter than his? You understand? Of course. And therefore, you can't. One of the three things you can't do. You can't transgress even in the face of death. I mean, three things like that in the Torah. Basically, this is one of them. You can't kill in order to save your own life. But when there's an aggressor involved, somebody trying to kill you. Or anyone else for that matter, you may take the life of the aggressor in order to save the victim. The commonest medical application of this law, and I'm sure you must be aware of it, is abortion. Right? The commonest medical application is where the fetus threatens the life of the mother. The Rambam rules definitively that the fetus is considered to be an aggressor on the life of the mother. It's a fascinating issue. Many questions have been raised on this. Why does he define this? a non sentient, non intentional act on the part of the fetus as a radar? Fascinating issue. Perhaps we could speak about it some other time, also amazing area. Nevertheless, it's brought down in the code of Jewish law, and it's ruled definitively when the fetus threatens the life of the mother during a pregnancy, then we are <coughs> judging the fetus to be a red evidence on that basis that we actively take the life of the, of the child in order to save the life of the mother. This applies only during pregnancy, incidentally. Once the birth process begins, once the head of the child is delivered, then the child is not, neither one has precedence. Mm-hmm. Then we have the principle of we not set aside one life in the face of another. This is a whole fascinating area, but that's the law of abortion. You know that the, uh, interesting that the law of, uh, the Torah law for non-Jews here, do you know that the Torah, the Torah is universal. No, it's, the Torah is universal. Its, its principles apply to all peoples at all times and places. But the law for Jews and for non-Jews is not always the same, mm-hmm. by no means. In this particular matter, the Torah is much more stringent with non-Jews than it is for Jews. Yes, the Torah regards abortion for non-Jews as an act of homicide—very, very serious prohibition, much more serious than it is for Jews. Not that it's allowed for Jews either, yes. but a more serious prohibition for non-Jews. Sterilization, yes, is a more serious prohibition for Jews than for non-Jews. You have to know. It's not the time to go into it now. Incidentally, if you know that Catholic law—and this was a Catholic hospital—puts the fetus's life above the life of the mother. Do you know that? And the reason is, and you can not even think of asking me questions on this subject, I have enough trouble keeping up with halacha. <laughs> but um, the reason for this, and I've been told this by Knowledgeable, I had opportunity to present some of this material in front of uh, Jewish and non-Jewish audiences, and some Catholic authorities have told me that the reason that they prefer, if possible, to save the life of the fetus and sacrifice the life of the mother, albeit not necessarily actively, is because in their philosophy the child is born in a state of sin and therefore will go to a place in the hereafter which is very painful and difficult. But the mother, having been baptized already, is saved by the grace of the founder of the religion, and therefore she's guaranteed a place in the next world. But the child, yes, has not been baptized, so then we'd rather let the mother die, who's already guaranteed a place in the next world, and save the child to be baptized, so the child too can also be given that. That's got nothing to do with uh, the Jewish law, and we, we don't do that. My father, Al-Mashon, told me that he was a... Um, when my father was a young registrar in obstetrics and gynecology, he spent the rest of his life in another medical specialty, but when he trained in that specialty in Dublin, after leaving Guy's Hospital here, he told me that there were cases when he was attending a woman in labor, Catholic woman, whose husband walked over to him and said, Doctor, if my wife's labor becomes obstructed, save the child and sacrifice my wife. Right? And we're not talking about problematic marriages, we're talking about... Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Mm-hmm.
0: Not that he ever had to do that, but that, that w- our perspective is, in fact, although this is not the time to go into it fully, that when the fetus <coughs> is defined as a redev and aggressor on the life of the mother, the missioner says that you can dismember the fetus if necessary in order to save the life of the man. That's a medical, classical medical application of this principle. The principle of redev is very is very Just to share with you one insight into to show you how complicated it can be, difficult it can be. 1973 in Israel. There was a case of some Israeli soldiers in the Sinai who were being fired upon by another group of Israelis. You know, unfortunately, sometimes in war, Mm. you have a mistaken identity, what they call friendly fire. And a group of Israeli boys was being fired upon by another group of Israelis. At a distance was a third group. And they could see what was happening and could not communicate, yes, to stop what was going on. In the third group were some religious fellows. And some of them wanted to start shooting. You understand this? They wanted to start shooting. Group A was firing upon Group B. Some of the religious fellows in Group C wanted to start shooting at the boys in Group A and kill them to stop them killing their brothers in Group B. A massive argument erupted on the battlefield about it. And in fact, they did nothing. They held their fire. And lives were lost in the first group. When they got back, they went to see Rabbi Yashik, one of the great Talaqic authorities in Jerusalem, in the world today he lives in Jerusalem. They went to ask him, he said, that under no circumstances would they have been allowed to fire. That is not what you call a roidev, right? That is a case of what's called Menshamayakaradfilay, that is it's a different area that's not a fascinating area for homework, you can figure out the difference between the fetus who has no intention, the soldiers who have no intention fascinating area. Now, that is the law of roidev and its application <coughs> in, in medicine. Can you see where we're heading with this principle? Are these two little girls... Is each one a rodef on her sister? Is each one... Could we say... On what basis can we kill one to save the other? Perhaps we can say that one of them, each can turn to her sister and say, look, if it weren't for you, yes, I might survive. You are an aggressor on my... One of the young rabbis present, Ostra Feinstein, what if two men come down by parachute and one fails to open? So he grabs his friend's leg and due to the combined weight, the parachute begins to rip. Is the man with a parachute on his back allowed to kick his friend off to a certain death in order to save his life? Do you want to say the analogy? Or not? One of the precedents that was raised, in fact, was a Talmudic pre. You know, in the Talmud, there's a case, famous case of two people in the desert with one bottle of water. More specifically, two people in the desert where one of them has a bottle of water such that if he drinks it all by himself, he will reach civilization. Why anybody would want to do that these days beats me. But assume <laughs> that he would want to do that. If he drank the water, he would survive. If he shares the water with his friend, there will not be enough for either. It's a very interesting debate in the Talmud. Should he rather share the water with his friend and not see him die? Or should he drink it himself, even though his friend will die, but one will survive? We rule according to Rabbi Akiva's opinion, which is that the one who has the water, in fact, is obliged to drink it. Chayach Your life comes first. You must save your life first. You're a trustee. Your life is, in fact, a trusteeship. And you've been given... Quite the contrary to the secular principle of autonomy. It's my life if I don't want to save it, I don't have to. Judaism says, absolutely not. You are obliged to save your life, even in this circumstance, and therefore that is the reason. Is the, are these two twins like? Does one of them have the heart, the other one doesn't? Yeah, these are the precedents that in fact were, were discussed. We need one more principle. How are we doing? Yeah, we're we together. One more principle. The Talmud brings a case, and the Ramam deals with this. Fascinating case which is known as the case of a shira. Shara in Hebrew means a caravan. That means a group of Jews, Shara, a group of Jews traveling in the desert who are besieged by a terrorist group, right? Here we're sitting in this room. There's a group of terrorists that surround the room and they issue us with a life and death ultimatum. Unfortunately, this has happened throughout human history and certainly throughout Jewish history and has happened in recent times. It happened during the war on many occasions, these types of ultimatum. The terrorists say to us, look... Our ultimatum is, send out one person, and we'll kill that person, and let you all go. If you refuse, we'll kill everybody. You hear the dilemma. They want us to send out an individual, they draw lots, or nominate someone, or whatever, take someone, send them out, and kill that person, and then we will all survive. If we refuse, everybody will die. Now, you could make a very convincing argument to some individual, right? You could take an individual and say, look, my friend, you're going to die anyway. Right? Because if you don't step outside, they're going to kill you along with the rest of us. So, you know, perhaps you could... You know, <laughs> the, uh, in fact, In fact, the Rambam who comments on this says absolutely clearly, and there's no argument on this point, you ruled unanimously in Jewish law, we are forbidden to do that. Forbidden to do that. Even though it means the death of many, many people, we are forbidden to kill somebody, right? To gain that Benefit. That's his situation, that's not ours. We have not been given that authority. We are not allowed to do that. Yes, that is not, uh, we're not allowed to do that. Um, there are many variations on this theme that have been raised salakically. What if there's a wanted criminal among us? What if there's somebody terminally ill among us? Can somebody volunteer, what's called Kiddush Hashem, to run out to save a Jewish community? An incredible act, happened many times. In the Talmud also recorded a case of two Jewish brothers who did that in the town of Lud and saved the town. Many, many variations on this theme. In fact, the case in the Talmud is a fascinating case where Yoav, who was the general of King David's army, besieged the town of Avel because he was looking for a criminal by the name of Sheva ben Bichri. Sheva ben Bichri had rebelled against David and was hiding out in the town of Avel. And Yoav threatened the people of the town, threatened to wipe them all out unless they delivered Sheva ben Bichri. This is the precedent in the Talmud. And the whole debate there, in the Yerushalmi Talmud, Yerushalmi, debate between Rabbi Yekhan and and Lakish, whether the reason that they were allowed to give Shaba bin Bichri to them, which is in fact what happened if there was a woman who, a woman, a very old woman, appeared on the ramparts. Serach bat Asher, Serach bat Asher. She taught you of, in fact, the law in this case. Very interesting, look it up yourself. She, in fact, saved the day, and they, in fact, sacrificed Sheba bin Bichri in order to save the town. There the Talmud debate was the reason that they sacrificed him only because he was guilty of a capital crime in the first place. But had he not been guilty of such a crime, or any crime against the the group outside, it would not have been allowed. One opinion in the Talmud is they sacrificed his life only because he already had incurred a death sentence. The opposing opinion in the Talmud is that he didn't, not because of that, but only because he had been nominated. You see, what happens if the terrorists surround us and they change the ultimatum slightly? They say, look, we want, and then name the individual. They say, we want so and so. we got a problem with, you know, Finkel-Movic. That's that's the person we want. Send him out, and we'll kill him, and you can all go free. Can you see that that's a very different situation to one in which we are required to select somebody who might not have been that person, but somebody else, perhaps. In such a case, the Rama doesn't talk about that over there, (coughs) or rather, this is the precedent where it's discussed. Is the issue the fact that he's been nominated, or is it the fact that he had a death sentence? This is the source in the Talmud for this fascinating debate. Why are we discussing this? Because obviously, can you see that in the case of our twins, that is exactly the point. If the twins are really threatening each other's lives equally, yes, then we are in fact, can you see, being required to make a choice. We would not be allowed to do that. But when Dr. Koop answered that there's no way that he could save baby girl A, the operation, if done, could only be done in one direction. That gave the avenue, the opportunity to look at baby girl A, possibly, as the aggressor on baby girl B, and only in that direction. And therefore, possibly, we could sacrifice her life in order to save the life of baby Gobi. Had it been a possibility of doing it either way, this would not have applied. Can we take a moment for another aside? Can we do that? Can I set you a problem for homework? Would you like that? <laughs>
1: if
0: you solve this problem, I'll buy you a whiskey. Top, <laughs> not a bottle. A bottle. <laughs> um... <laughs> Let me set you a problem. Yes, challenge your... Can I challenge your halachic genius? (laughs) There was a case in 19... This must have been around the beginning of the... the the, the early days of the state of Israel, (coughs) somewhere between 48 and 53, thereabouts, which came before the Chazan Eshidat in 1953, so it must have been somewhere around there, where a man in Israel was driving down the Caramel Mountain. Right? where his brakes failed. You know, it was an Israeli car, I never tried out the brakes before. <laughs>
1: but,
0: um, <laughs> relied on the hooter. Um, uh, <laughs> <I say> <laughs> anyway, he was driving down the... He was driving down the Carmel Mountain when his brakes failed. Okay? And he found himself careening towards a bus stop in which ten people were standing listen carefully to his dilemma he was going down the mountain you know the Carmel in Haifa very steep mountain he found himself going down the mountain and ahead of him were ten people and he could not stop there was only one thing he could do he could turn the wheel away from the ten but into a place where two people were standing those were his only options he could sit and do nothing and plow into ten people possibly killing them or he could turn the wheel away from the ten but into a place where two people were standing and kill those now I don't know what he did but after the incident, they went to ask the Chazanish, great halachic authority of, of his day in B'nai B'raq, They went to ask him, what should the man have done? And the Chazanish said that he should have turned the wheel away from the ten and into the two. Now, that should raise a red flag. A light should go on in your head. You should be asking a question here yeah, because the people who asked the Chazanish did, in fact, ask him a question. They said, Rabbi, does that not contradict the law of the people in the room? Can you see? We have a situation, listen, listen well, before you you leap to answer, hear well the case. When we have people in a room, let's say we have ten people in a room, may we kill two in order to save the rest? Definitely not. We're certainly not allowed to do that, right? We said we can't give over a person or two people to the aggressors outside to save the rest of us. We can't do that. We cannot kill two people, definitely not, in order to save many. So why do you rule over here? that the person in the car should do exactly that. Isn't that exactly analogous? Exactly the same situation. Again, let's, let's think about it carefully. You have people in a room doing nothing, sitting passively. If they sit passively, they all die. Okay? If they act, they act to kill one or two. The man in the car sits passively, does nothing, ten people die. Huh? If he acts to kill two, so then, the Chazanish said, in the case of the room, forbidden to do anything. In the case of the car, you should have turned the wheel. So they asked him why there's a contradiction between these cases and the Chazanis showed them a logical distinction between the cases on pure logical grounds. You don't need any Talmudic background, you just need a clear head, a very beautiful, very subtle, but very powerful logical distinction between the cases. Okay? Do not answer this question in factual terms. He's inside and they're outside. You know, he can choose, they can't choose. It's got nothing to do with the factual... You can make thousands of factual differences between these cases. He, they're they killing him and yeah, he's... We don't want that, okay? We want exactly parallel situations, right? Do nothing. Ten people die, act, and two people die. In the one case, do nothing. In the case of the car, do something, okay? That's homework. So you can, you can think about that uh, question. You're welcome to ask me it sometime some later, and i am happy to try and share with you what he Now, let me tell you what happened in the case of the Twins. And um, perhaps if there's a few minutes for questions, if something's not clear, I'll do my best to, to answer. First of all, there was a court hearing. Let me tell you about that. The court sat, the high court sat in the United States. It happened to be a private hearing. It was a three-judge panel was convened and it happened to be a public holiday that, that the day that year. There was a team of lawyers engaged to argue precedent in front of the judges in order to extract from them a an order authorizing surgery so that the hospital would be protected. And the lawyers brought uh, fascinating precedents, most of them from the field of law known as lifeboat ethics, ethics and law. You know, where people were in a lifeboat and there was not enough food for all of them, so they starved one person or they threw one person overboard or they ate one person. There have been cases like this which have come to court to trial later and there's a body of law in secular, secular law dealing with these cases. They brought these precedents. Ultimately, the court accepted a certain principle in American law that allowed them to proceed with would allow them to proceed with surgery. The court, in fact, issued an order authorizing surgery. But I want to share with you just one insight here, which is really fascinating, especially for the legal minds among you. That is uh, well worth knowing. <coughs> the lawyers raised one argument, which is really amazing. L- listen carefully to this. They said, "We'll need one word of background here." You know, I mentioned earlier that the definition of death is a very, very difficult, very vexed issue in Halakha, still is being d- debated, um, and it was a very difficult issue in the secular world. Now it's been accepted, brain death has been accepted, but it's still, from time to time, still uh, raises its head and, and, and raises uh, strong emotions. The question, is, the question is, what exactly is the definition of death? What moment defines death? Now, this case took place in 1977. Now, why that's important is because In 1977 in Pennsylvania, the law was, like it was everywhere else at the time, virtually everywhere, that the definition of death is cessation of spontaneous heartbeat. Okay? That's it. And that agrees very well with Jewish law. Very well. I'm not going to go into the details now. Those are the classical criteria. When the heart stops beating spontaneously, the patient is dead. Okay? They changed that later, but at the time, that was the law. The lawyers argued as follows. Listen carefully. Very, very ingenious argument. They said, look, In this case, what will happen? Baby girl A will be separated off. The heart will continue beating in the chest of baby girl B. If no heart stops beating, nobody can be dying. You know what this means? Let me try and make it clear for you. This means if you didn't like somebody particularly, you could hack their heart out, keep it going in your bath of,
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, you could then dispose of the rest of them in small pieces, and that would not be actionable in law because if no heart stopped eating, nobody died, right? That that is what you call the letter of the law, but it's not what they call it it's in America, and the spirit of the law, and the judges, as you might well sympathized, threw that out of court uh, on the turn, and they accepted another logic. But it's fascinating to know that in Torah, we don't have strange loopholes. In a divine system, there are not strange (coughs) loopholes that can come up with weird... You know, it's been very, very beautifully put. This is a statement attributed to Shemshun of Hirsch. He says that in a democracy, the people make the law. In Torah, the law makes the people. (laughs) Anyway, the court authorized surgery, and what happened, in fact, was that the hospital moved ahead, Rabbi Moesha gave his consent, he ruled, in fact, that surgery would be proper, and I'll say to you, this is not clear that this, and this alone was his reasoning, as I said, there have been other, but I have time now to go into the alternative suggestions, although the two main alternative suggestions were radically different in reasoning, but clearly concur with the... Outcome. Now, different halachic approaches co- concur with the outcome, and almost certainly that would be the halachic angle on the case that we are we are familiar with. Again, this is not, you need much broader shoulders than these, I can assure you in order to, th- these are questions of life and death for the very greatest of, of our Torah authorities. But we are studying here this evening not what should be the definitive solution here, but rather what are the background issues in order to, to understand. The, um, the surgery went ahead. In fact, what happened was the uh, team of surgeons opened the chests of the children. They separated the livers, which went without any incident of note. Dr. Coop insisted on being the one to do the very, very difficult step of tying off the major vessels of baby girl A. She died instantly, obviously. The heart continued beating without any problems. They completed the separation of the twins. He personally carried her body over to the table that they had prepared. And in fact, it turned out not to be necessary to use her ribs. What happened was the chest of baby girl B closed with all the anatomical relations in the normal place containing this six-chambered abnormal heart. It was not necessary to use the ribs of her twin. And in fact, Dr. Koop personally returned the body of baby girl A to the family on the same day before sunset. so She could be buried on the same day, which is obviously preferable, halakhically. People present say it was a tremendous Kenush Hashem in sanctification of Hashem's name of Judaism to see a family, Jewish family and to see the non-Jews involved go along the route, the process of of, uh, required by Torah in this case and um, in fact that is what happened in that case. Perhaps we'll just devote a couple of minutes to questions. If there are any that I'm able to answer that are specifically relevant to the things we discussed I'd be happy to try to do so.
1: Now, how
0: long did, um... Question about yeah. baby Girl B. Unfortunately, baby girl B died 47 days later. The reports said that she died of a hepatitis that she got from a blood transfusion, completely unrelated, you know, I mean rela- unrelated to the specifics of her case during the surgery, and she did not uh, not survive: Please what I read the
1: the parents were opposed to the uh, to the operation right good because point a situation right. where you right. got the, the in a sense, the, the authority to right. say right. go ahead right
0: I understand your question parents right
1: now in Jewish law to right. what extent would you say right. that the, all right the halakha may say X? by Z, right. to what extent the feelings of the parents right. are to be taken into That's a good marriage, question. consent?
0: It's been pointed out for those who can't hear down there, that in this case that we are familiar with here, the parents are of the opinion that surgery should not be done. And the question is, halakhically, do the parents have any say here? But what would be the Jewish angle on this? It's not a simple question. The baseline here would be that they have no say at all. And the reason is that when it comes to life-saving, it's not relevant for anybody else on the outside to say whether it should or shouldn't be done. If it would be a clear case of life saving. There are opinions, for example, that hold that in such a case I didn't go into that this evening, that it's not a case of Rhodef at all. But that a child with a non functioning heart, and in our case, perhaps even non existent heart, supported entirely but is not even considered to be a human in the sense of but the halachic term would be a nephil, not in this case and therefore they wouldn't, it would be clear. If that would be clear, then the obligation to save baby girl B's life would be paramount, <coughs> and have nothing to do with the strongest objections of anybody. Now, there may be cases where it's not so clear. There may be cases where we have a very fine line, and it could go either way. In such a case, the halakha regards parents as what we call an apotropis. Apotropis means the empowered, I don't know what you call it in secular law, but the empowered um, trustee or guardian, you call them the, w- w- the, w- the, w- the, w- the wards, is there a legal term for that? Guardian. Guardian. They empowered guardians to make a decision in best interests of a child. You have that concept in Jewish law. But that would only be where it could go either way halakhically. But if there would be a clear life-saving question, right, then there's no... The precedent for that, again, I don't know how I can talk all night here, but um, another, another four minutes, yes? Is that good?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes,
0: we'll, we'll stop then. The precedent for this is, there have been cases where, give you the clear, clear case here, the clear precedent for this, the, ca- <coughs> the precedents I'm thinking of in a non-Jewish world, where a child, give you a case, a few years ago in America, there was a case of an 11-year-old girl who had a 4-year-old brother dying of kidney failure. the family. 4-year-old <coughs> child dying of kidney failure. His 11-year-old sister matched antigenically. The surgeons wanted to use her kidney to save the life of her brother. Okay? The problem was that she was 11. Now, that is not the age of majority, right, in American law, and I'm sure it's not here. And therefore, they could not get the child's consent. Her consent is irrelevant, right? You need The parents cannot consent. By no system of law can the parents... You can consent for operation or dangerous procedure for the benefit of the one to whom you're doing that, right? In, In South Africa, and I'm sure it's the same in England, even a hospital superintendent or a local magistrate can sign... And uh, consent to surgery for very risky surgery when there's no one else to sign consent and it's needed to save the life of the patient but you can't sign consent for surgery on A to save B yes on behalf of A and if A is a minor no matter how much A agrees nobody else can sign consent not even the parents and therefore the case went to court in America and the court turned down the surgeon's the, 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 the application to use even though the child might have agreed but they held that she was not of age to make meaningful consent, and therefore they refused permission to use, the parents' opinion, yes, was irrelevant here, that's what I'm trying to illustrate, they refused permission, even in secular courts, to use the kidney of the 11-year-old girl. This is a summary of some of the issues, They're fascinating spin-offs of all of these things, obviously. This is what happened in this particular case, and gives you some food for thought about how to approach, uh, you know, what is happening here.